This is NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. I'm Juliette Lewini, and we are so excited to share this first episode with you. For 40 years, the New England Review has brought great new writing to readers across the country through its quarterly magazine. We are creating this podcast to celebrate that writing in a new form, that is, through the intimacy of the human voice. Our vision for this podcast is founded in our belief that any piece of writing is a collaboration between writer and reader, and that there is something vital and revelatory about listening to words read aloud by people who are willing to dive deep into a text. Future podcasts may include conversations with the readers and authors, snippets from the recording studio, or audio from the annual NER Out Loud Live event held right here in Middlebury, Vermont. For the first episode, we're offering readings of two pieces that converge on the themes of art and destruction, a poem by Henry Kearney IV and a short story by Anne Ryeth. Here's Shotgun Elegy by Henry Kearney IV. Even now, wouldn't it start like that? An empty plastic milk jug peppered with buckshot as we learned the art of destruction. The chaos of oiled colors adhering to unseen fibers in the canvas, its purity destroyed and the whole thing altered like those milk jugs that would jump and roll down into the cloud of field dust kicked up behind them. Or the way that chicken got loose when we were fooling around in the coop, where we should not have been, but there we were, and it got out and all hell broke loose. Dogs chasing it all over, daddy yelling, and then finally, when the dogs had the poor thing cornered, it played dead and fooled everybody. The dogs got bored and left it alone. Daddy told us to bury the damn thing. And when we went to get it, it jumped up, unhurt, scaring the hell out of us and starting the whole show over again. Now that was art. All of it. And would have been just as much if the dogs had ripped the little bastard apart. Shouldn't life be like that? Simple and unpredictable and damn near impossible to catch? Shouldn't it be able to play dead when it needs to? Sometimes I think I learned everything I know that day, but sometimes I don't. Those milk jugs are never far from my mind. All these years, all these oceans, and I don't think I've ever seen anything more beautiful. Though there was that one time I almost put my eye out with a BB gun. Most perfect thing I've ever done. We were shooting at a barn wall, and I sent one so perfect and straight it came right back down the sight, 180 degrees, straight into my left good eye. One secret the recoil teaches is you shoot with your eyes, not your hands, and you have to know which eye to trust. The test is simple and never lies. You find a tree about 50 yards away, look at it with both eyes, then close each eye in turn, and the one the tree moves less in is your good eye the one the world is truest through. Daddy taught me that. Sitting in our ancient red Chevy one day, out in the pasture while we were taking a break from whatever we were doing, I still remember it. And, as far as I know, the tree I tried it out on is still there. It's funny what sticks with you, what falls away, and that's art too. Art in its highest form. What I wouldn't give to be shooting a 12-gauge at a milk jug right now. But I'm not. Guess I'll make do with what I've got.
was Shotgun Elegy by Henry Kearney IV. Kearney is from Robertsonville, North Carolina, and received his MFA from Warren Wilson College. Shotgun Elegy was originally published in the New England Review in the fall of 2016. It was read today by Will Cook, a joint English theater major in the Middlebury College class of 2021. Next up, we have Chinese Opera, a story by Anne Ryeff. The night Danny McSween was murdered, the Bukowskis were at the Chinese Opera. The three of them, Simone, her sister Juliet, and their father, had been there all day. The coroner's report said that he had died somewhere between eight and midnight, so his death might not have occurred during the performance, but rather when they were eating dinner later. The exact time is not crucial. Still, Simone will always think of the actor's endless wailing and excruciatingly slow movements and their white, painted faces when she thinks of Danny McSween's last moments. Their father had a long tradition of dragging them to such events. When they were small, Simone was sure he searched carefully for the most tedious and difficult performances to bring them to. She thought he was trying to teach them something, patience, perhaps, or tolerance, but she realized, now that she was twelve, that he simply had had no idea what torture these outings were for young children. It was especially cold the day they went to see the Chinese opera, and it was cold in the theater, too, so Simone kept her coat and gloves on the whole time. At first, she enjoyed the performance. She liked the feel of the gong reverberating in her legs and in her heart, and was amused by the costumes. She fell into a sort of trance, concentrating on color, sound, and movement, without thinking about the plot or the cacophony. But after the one intermission, during which the three of them ate black bread with butter and honey, she grew increasingly bored. Their father had promised to take them to their favorite diner after the performance. When Simone and Juliet were younger, their father was able to get them to do just about anything if he promised that they would have dinner at a diner afterwards. Simone sat through the rest of the performance, rubbing her hands and dreaming of the oily warmth of the diner. Later, after hearing the awful news about Danny McSween, Simone felt that she should have been using this time more wisely instead of wasting it, thinking about the cold and wondering whether she should order a mushroom or cheese omelet. Danny McSween was their favorite of their neighbor's seven sons. Danny was the middle child and the quietest of all the McSween boys, although Simone did not really know the twins, or Alan, who was next in line and had been shot in the lung in Vietnam and then married a Japanese woman. But what they really looked forward to were the nights when Danny McSween babysat. As soon as their father was out the door, the excitement would begin. The first step was to clear the living room, move everything, the couch, the chairs, tables, rugs, through the kitchen and into the family room. They did this efficiently and carefully, making sure not to scrape the walls or scuff the wooden floors. You don't know how lucky you are to have wooden floors, Danny McSween said every time. Carpeting is the scourge of the modern world. How on earth is anyone supposed to dance on carpeting? When all the living room furniture was piled into the family room, they changed into their dance clothes. Danny McSween wore special shoes and wonderful black pants with pleats. Simone and Juliet put on their good school shoes. 
Danny McSween had a collection of records that he carried in a green patent leather satchel that he had bought in New York specifically for that purpose. They always started with waltzes and ended with the cha-cha-cha, their favorite. His favorite was the tango, which Simone found a little embarrassing, especially when he insisted on more passion. Where's the passion? He would call over the music. More passion, more passion. At the end of the dance lessons, they put the furniture back exactly right so their father wouldn't notice. Though he would not have minded, would have been happy to know that they were having such a good time with Danny McSween. Still, Danny made them promise not to tell anyone. And they never did. Not even after he was dead. They learned about his death from the local newspaper. On the front page, there was a photo of Danny McSween in his chef's uniform. He had just graduated from the Culinary Institute of America and moved to New York, where he had gotten a job at a restaurant with stars. The newspaper said he had been found in his apartment in Greenwich Village, shot in the back of the head, execution style. They did not go to the funeral. Their father avoided religious ceremonies of any kind, even weddings, and tried to have as little as possible to do with all things religious, though they sometimes went to concerts at Riverside Church in New York. It was a matter of principle with him to fight against what he called the forces of unreason, as he did when he was drafted into the army and refused to declare a religion, even when the superior officer explained that they needed a religion so that they would know how to dispose of his body if he died. Their father was unbending. You can leave me there for the vultures like the Zoroastrians do, her father had said. Every time he told the story, Simone could not help but imagine her father dead, the vultures pecking at his flesh, his eyes, and when he came to that part, she always laughed so as not to let on that she was frightened. Like who? The officer had said. The Zoroastrians, her father answered. Is that a religion? Yes, her father had said. They leave their dead exposed to the elements and the vultures in what they call the Tower of Silence. How do you spell that? The officer asked. The man grabbed the form, crossed out none, and wrote Zoroastrian. There, now you have a religion. Now you can die. Still, even though Simone was afraid to see it, she felt they should be there to watch Jenny McSween's body be let down into the earth. Don't you think we should go? She asked her father just an hour before the funeral was to begin. It's much more important to pay our respects afterwards, he explained. They won't even notice who's at the church. But for Danny, Simone said, do you think he was a believer? He asked. I don't know. We never talked about it, Simone said. Well, if he wasn't, he would have preferred us not to go, he said. But we don't know whether he was or wasn't, she argued. No, we don't, he said leaving her with nothing to argue against, for one cannot argue with incertitude. What if it were a Zoroastrian funeral? Simone asked. Would we go then? Maybe, he said. At least then it would be all out in the open. What would be out in the open? she asked. Everything, he said. Everything we don't want to see. Like the wound? she asked. Like the wound, he replied taking her in his arms, for she had begun to cry. When they saw the mourners arriving back at the McSween's house after the funeral, 
Simone, Juliet, and their fathers went over to pay their respects. They were dressed all in black. Their father wore his funeral suit. They brought a bottle of vodka and baklava because their father had said they should bring something. At the McSween's house, there were plenty of black scarves and black ties and black shoes, but they were the only ones all in black. They stood awkwardly in front of the picture window that looked out onto the McSween's backyard, where just the summer before, Simone and Juliet had played catch and flipped baseball cards. Their father made his way around the room, shaking hands with Mr. McSween and all the remaining McSween boys. When he had finished conveying his condolences to the men of the family, he joined his daughters at the window. Mrs. McSween is upstairs in the bedroom, he said. I think you should go see her. They climbed the stairs to the second floor slowly. They had never been upstairs before. The McSween boys had been outdoor companions, and it never would have occurred to them to visit their rooms. Mrs. McSween, all in black also, was lying on top of a cream-colored bedspread like a giant fell chess piece. Surrounding her were women of all ages, holding her hands and clasping her legs. No one noticed Simone and Juliet as they stood in the doorway watching. Simone wanted to flee, but she knew they could not simply turn around, descend the stairs, and tell their father that they had not known how to approach Mrs. McSween. He would not have understood about the barrier of women, and they could not have lied and said they had spoken to her when they hadn't. It would have made them sad to lie to their father about such a thing. Juliet pulled on the sleeve of Simone's black shirt, but Simone ignored it. She was focused on Mrs. McSween's grief. She moved towards Mrs. McSween, and as if she were Moses and the women the Dead Sea, they parted before her. I would like to extend my condolences, she said, but all Mrs. McSween did was tilt her head without directing her eyes in her direction, as if she were blind and trying to hear more clearly. Of all your boys, Danny was my favorite, Simone said, and Mrs. McSween began to weep. She twitched on the bed and gasped, and the women ran back to hold her hands and wipe her brow. Someone brought a glass of water, and the older women pulled the weeping Mrs. McSween up on her pillows and held it to her lips. She doesn't want to drink anything, Simone said quietly, and all the women turned and stared at her. Juliet ran out of the room. Come closer, Simone. Mrs. McSween demanded in her raspy smoker's voice that was raspier still from crying. Sit down. Simone sat down and closed her eyes. Mrs. McSween pulled her closer and whispered directly into her ear. He was my favorite, too. Then she turned away and started to weep again. When Simone returned to the living room, the mourners were looking out the picture window, watching the bright pink winter sun setting. Her father was not one of the sunset watchers. He was leaning against the wall, looking at a large art book, which he was holding up with one hand. Simone, he said, as if he had been worried that she was lost. It's getting dark, Simone said. They walked silently back home. Their father wanted to make scrambled eggs for dinner, but no one was hungry. So they had chamomile tea and jouibac, which is what they ate when they were sick. That night, Simone could not sleep. She tried reading, forcing herself to read what she called the pretty poems, the ones she usually skipped over, Wordsworth and Cummings, Houseman. She hoped that flowers and love and small hands would cheer her up, 
but she could not rid herself of the image of Danny McSween sitting at his desk with a bullet hole in the back of his head. She tried to imagine what kind of person would feel compelled to execute Danny McSween, who had always been so polite and had a dimple in his left cheek. Simone closed her eyes and pretended she was sleeping in a house overlooking the ocean. The house was humble, a small whitewashed cottage with a fireplace and stone floors. She tried listening for the crashing of the surf on rocks and the sound wind makes on water. But Danny McSween entered her cottage by the sea, sat in her simple wooden chair in her simple kitchen with cast iron pans and earthenware pitchers. He sat down and said that he was very, very tired and asked for a glass of water. Please, he said, and blood was pouring out of his head and onto his shirt and a puddle of blood formed on the stone floor at his feet. Simone got up then, walked quietly down the stairs, put on her coat and gloves and scarf. She stood in the backyard looking at the back of the McSween's house. She had expected it to be dark, but to her surprise the house was totally illuminated. She walked toward the house and stood in the flower bed underneath the living room picture window, her breath clouding the glass. She wanted then to turn around and walk back to her warm house, get under the covers, sleep finally. But she remembered Danny and how he would feel neither heat nor cold nor long for sleep. So she stayed. Finally, just when dawn was turning to day, she saw Mrs. McSween descending the stairs, pausing on each step as if to make sure it was strong enough to take her weight. Mrs. McSween stepped off the last step and walked into the living room. She swung around, and before Simone could drop to the ground or run, Mrs. McSween saw her. Because Simone did not know what else to do, she waved. Mrs. McSween opened the back door, and Simone entered. Sit, she said, pointing to the sofa, and Simone sat down. Immediately, Simone began shaking. How long have you been standing out in the cold? Mrs. McSween asked. A long time, Simone said. I'll bring some whiskey, Mrs. McSween said, and walked over to the liquor cabinet. She carried two very full glasses of whiskey back to the sofa and sat down next to Simone. Simone took a sip. I need your help, Mrs. McSween said. Simone leaned in towards Mrs. McSween. I want you to tell them to go away, Mrs. McSween said. Tell whom to go away, Simone asked. All of them, my sons and sisters and the cousins and friends and in-laws. I don't even know who they all are. But they seem to know me, know that what I need to do is eat soup and rest and cry. They keep telling me that I should cry, that crying will do me good. But I... Simone's hands began to tremble, so she put them under her thighs and pressed down hard upon them. But I don't know them, she said. What? Mrs. McSween asked. I don't know them, Simone repeated. Of course, you can't tell them, Mrs. McSween agreed. You're just a child. She pulled out a cigarette and held it gently in the palm of her hand, as if it were a baby bird. I didn't say I couldn't tell them, Simone said. She thought of Danny and how he would have known how to get them all out of the house without making anyone feel bad. So you'll do it? Mrs. McSween took her hand. 
Yes, Simone said. Where are they? They're everywhere. You'll just have to start opening up doors, she said. Simone climbed the stairs slowly. She sat down on the stairs and tried to muster the courage to open the doors to the rooms where the sleeping mourners lay. She knew that Danny would have wanted her to help his mother, who had loved him more than she had loved her other six children. But Simone couldn't do it. Back down the stairs she went, softly, so as not to make the floorboards creak. She turned the latch and opened the front door and stepped outside where the sun was now bright and ricocheted off the remaining patches of snow, catching her right in the eye. In the days that followed, Simone avoided the McSween's house, so she did not know whether the flock of cars that stood in their driveway had thinned slowly or whether they had all disappeared at once, like geese from a lake. Once they were all gone, she wondered whether Mrs. McSween missed having them all there. Maybe all the McSweens wanted was quiet, but this is something she would never know. The Bukowskis did not talk to the McSweens much after Danny's death. They waved from their side of the fence and left bags of apples from their apple tree on their back porch. But sometimes at night, before she fell asleep, Simone would imagine herself finding Danny McSween's killer, cornering him in a dark alley, smashing his head against the wall while he begged for mercy and leaving him there, bleeding on the street. It was always raining in her pre-sleep fantasies. In the distance, she could hear cymbals crashing like at the Chinese opera, and she moved in rhythm with them until they ceased completely, and all she could hear was Danny's executioner calling out for her help. Don't leave me here. Don't leave me. Have some mercy for God's sake. Have mercy. That was Chinese Opera by Anne Ryaf. Anne Ryaf's second novel, Winter Kept Us Warm, was published in February 2018, and her short story collection, The Jungle Around Us, won the 2015 Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction. When she's not writing, she teaches at a high school in San Francisco. Chinese opera was originally published in the New England Review in the summer of 2016. It was read today by Gabby Valdivieso, a joint theater film major in the Middlebury College class of 2020. For more poems, stories, and essays, visit us online. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to help more people find the show. This episode of the NER Out Loud podcast was recorded on the Middlebury College campus in Middlebury, Vermont. NER Out Loud is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College and Oratory Now. Our readers today were Will Cook and Gabby Valdivieso, with pieces by Henry Kearney IV and Anne Ryaf. Our executive producers are Carolyn Keebler and Dana Yetten, and our scripts are edited by Marcy Pomerantz. Our sound engineers are Emma Showblocker and Sydney Warren. This episode was directed by Sam Tompkins Martin and produced by Ellie Eberly, Hannah Green, Kylie Winger, and me. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. Special thanks to Elizabeth Sutton. If you have a favorite piece from the magazine that you would like to hear read aloud, email us at nereview at middlebury.edu.
I'm Juliette Luini, and this is NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. Thank you for listening.